The following message is from Bear Creek Church. More information about BCC is available at bearcreekchurch.org. Good morning. Good to see you all this morning. You know, if you got my email, I don't know, wisdom would say, don't reveal that you're a fan of the ducks. Uh, Someone has suggested that I change the topic of this morning's sermon to loss and sadness. But I'm sticking with Acts. We're going to be looking at uh, verses 12 through 26 of chapter 1. What a great morning. I love that emphasis uh, Pastor Bill gave with communion. To recognize that the price that Christ has paid is greater than any of your sins could ever accumulate, the debt. Not just past, but right now. Great emphasis. Good news. Nothing replaces being together, gathering as the body of Christ, our fellowship, expressing the worth of God in song, hearing his word. Uh, Acts. Acts is a book of action. But before the action, there's preparation. Jesus commissions his disciples. He tells them then, stay. Wait. Wait for the Holy Spirit to come. He ascends into glory before their own eyes. And now for the next ten days, until Pentecost, they wait. Waiting can feel like a waste of time, right? Uh, We think of it as being unproductive. When I think of waiting, I think of this feeling, I suppose that feeling is impatience. Like when I got my new Blackstone griddle, I expected to get it home, put it in the backyard, and just get started making marvelous things. But it's in a box, not assembled, not that it's too complicated, but there's this paperwork in the box that impatient people never want to read, this paperwork entitled instructions. Um, and then you finally get it assembled. But then the last part of the instruction tells you that you must season your grill before you can cook on it. Oh. I just want to get started. But apparently, there's purpose to this. There's preparation that will actually make the food taste good and not stick and get ruined. And the disciples, well, they just, they just witnessed something amazing. The resurrected Lord just ascended bodily into a cloud And then a couple of angels show up and say, move it along, nothing to see here. He's coming back, it's going to look just like that. It was glorious, it was awesome. They were excited about what Jesus said was coming, the Holy Spirit. Their helper who would enable them to get busy with the greatest mission of all. A mission Jesus himself commissioned for them to do. And then they waited. And this waiting was not 
unproductive. It was sovereignly intentional, just like our waiting, which tends to make the point that God is the one doing the work, not just us. He's working through us. There are some important instructions in our text. I want to see, we we see obedience, we see fellowship, we see prayer, we see study of God's word. And before we get to this, let's prepare our hearts and minds now in prayer. Would you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, may we have the mindset of these first disciples who were overjoyed at the great honor given to Jesus as he was exalted and given the name above every name, deserving of our continual praise, our humble submission and service. Lord, thank you for the many proofs of your resurrection, for the gift of your Holy Spirit, for your word, which is truth, for the fellowship that we enjoy Thank you for this history of how you worked in the lives of these apostles and for the promise of your ongoing work in us, your church. Lord, please impact us with the truth of your word and use it for your glory. We pray in Jesus' great name. Amen. If you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Uh, Acts 1, 12 through 26. And uh, I've been reminded for uh, parents of little ones who who can't get their Bibles out uh, to have the words up on the screen for you. So uh, let's read, read along with me or follow along with me as I read. Verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room. Where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out and it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, 
Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, it's an interesting text, isn't it? And we might see Judas as a contrast to their waiting, an example of trying to make things happen on your own with your own wrong motives, your own expectations, instead of waiting on the Lord as these disciples are now doing. And before getting into this, these topics of obedience and fellowship and prayer and study, I want to point out a few things. First of all, if you have a life verse, it's probably not Acts one eighteen. A gruesome description of what happened to Judas, ultimately making the point that this man did wicked things in betraying Jesus. And because of his decision to do so, the the emphasis here is he's cursed. God's word says that everyone who hangs from a tree is cursed. And when we put the gospel of Matthew's description together with this description, it's a gruesome conclusion. (laughs) Judas, he felt great regret for what he had done, and sadly, unlike Peter, his regret did not end well. Peter we know, repented, repented and was forgiven. Judas returned the 30 pieces of silver back to the chief priests, and apparently the priests used this blood money to purchase the very field in which Judas went and hung himself. And then Luke's description here in Acts kind of picks it up, likely telling us the rest of this curse that his dead and exposed body bloated, fell from the rope onto the ground and burst open. Gross. Cursed is the emphasis of why this is described to us. Judas bore this awful disgrace and curse for his actions. His actions. And yet Peter points out that God ordained it. Speaking the words that David wrote in the 69th Psalm. So already in this short speech we see the free actions of man and the sovereignty of God. First, something, an area that a lot of people don't really think about. This is a struggle, isn't it? Responsibility of man, free actions of man, and the sovereignty of God. And we see them at odds with each other. But an area that most people don't really wrestle with, but it's really the same thing, has to do with Scripture itself. Uh, Think about it. This is God's Word. The Holy Spirit, it, it says the Holy Spirit is the one who spoke in Psalm 69. It's exactly what God wanted to say. It's God's Word. And yet, it's David's words. He wrote them. From his perspective, he wrote them freely. 
A right view of scripture is that God sovereignly spoke and that every word is his. God's word is 100% true because God does not err. And yet, a right view of scripture also says that human authors wrote with their own voice. We see their writing styles, we see their backgrounds, we see their personalities. They wrote it. God wrote it. They wrote what they wanted to write, yet it's God's word. So the actions of men and the sovereignty of God are really not at odds. We struggle with this, we put them against each other, and we have a hard time understanding it, but it's clearly the teaching of Scripture. A second thing that we see here is that Judas did what he wanted to do. And he was held responsible for it. He was cursed. Yet, God ordained for him to do it. Hundreds of years before he was born, God ordained it. Prophecy is certain. It's not God making an educated guess. (laughs) When God speaks, it creates what he speaks. He ordained it. And God is just to judge Judas according to the evil intention of Judas' heart. It's an amazing topic, a biblical topic that we're going to see over and over and over again in the book of Acts. And what we must not do is put one against the other. If we're faithful to Scripture, we will never say that God does not ordain all that occurs. Also, we will never say that he is unjust to judge man as if we're a bunch of robots. No, God is always just because even though he ordains our actions, our sins are because we desire in ourselves to do them. So he's just to judge us according to the evil intention of our hearts. Great topic. Again, we're going to see it over and over and over again you wrestle with it it's people wrestled with it for uh, hundreds and hundreds of years throughout church history Um, but this is what we see in scripture so okay no more waiting let's get to our study about waiting Uh, the disciples are waiting for this action of pentecost and the coming of the holy spirit And getting busy with the ministry that Jesus told them to do. And this time of waiting involves obedience, fellowship, prayer, and study. First of all, verse 4 tells us that Jesus suggested, no, he ordered, Jesus ordered them to stay in Jerusalem. And to wait there. Wait for the promise of the Father, wait for this baptism of Jesus with the Holy Spirit, not many days from now. And let's face it, we don't like to wait. But when the Lord tells us to wait, we better wait. Obedience is critical. It communicates that we trust him. It communicates that we believe he knows what's best. That we believe his commands are right and even loving, especially loving. God is good. 
What's our view of God? So it comes back to that. What's our view of God? Does it go back to man's very first sin asking, why can't I have that piece of fruit? I don't understand. It doesn't make sense to me. Are you keeping something good from me, God? Likewise, why should I marry someone who shares my faith? Why should I wait for the covenant of marriage to enjoy sex? There are good answers to these questions. It's not as if we can't know them, but ultimately, what is it that you believe about God? Is he good? Does he know what's best for you? If these disciples were to be effective witnesses for Jesus, they needed to learn obedience. And they might have been thinking, but there are people to be won. There's work to do. There's cities to be evangelized. And it all sounds so noble and right. And this is what sin often looks like. Justifying it in our own minds. But it'd still be disobedient. It'd still be them saying, I know better than Jesus. Or maybe he wasn't thinking of this. So when God's word is clear in its commands, we shouldn't wiggle around it with some clever new interpretation that allows us to do what we want to do. Don't justify sin when the commands are clear. Don't ignore what's clear because you don't understand why God says what he says. Obedience is a matter of faith. Faith is... Faith in who God is. And that his commands are always best. Obedience prepares us. It humbles us. It grows us. It makes us useful to him. Which will always lead to an eventual blessing. Second, in their waiting we see a time of fellowship. In their waiting, in this time of preparation, they gathered together for fellowship. Verse 14 tells us that no longer are they scattering, going back to their various cities. And Luke's gospel says that they were continually in the temple blessing God. Verse 13 tells us that the 11 disciples were in the upper room together along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and also Jesus' brothers, which is really cool because earlier on, Jesus' own brothers didn't believe in him. So apparently, in his resurrected state appearing to them, they now believe. So by the time that Peter gets to his speech in verse 15, there's about 120 gathered, or there are 120 gathered there. And those who saw the risen Lord um, probably make up a lot of these 120. Over 40 days, Jesus appeared to many. So together, they, they, they come together as a body of believers, encouraging, building each other up in this fellowship, thanking God, praising God. All centered on Christ. So fellowship is critical. Well, here's a reason. Fellowship is critical because people actually need people. It's a part of our humanity. We are relational beings because God is relational within himself. 
within the Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, in this loving relational relationship for all eternity. So this is not just um, an extrovert thing for us. It's a being made in the image of God thing. We don't grow um, in a lot of ways. We don't grow intellectually. We don't grow socially, spiritually, without people in our lives. And yes, our salvation, it's a, it's a personal, individual relationship with Jesus. We are, but we are saved into a body. We are saved into Christ's body, which is the church. And the church is not man's idea. Uh, regardless of what secular culture will criticize and tell you, church is not a construct of man. Church is God's idea. And Satan hates this. Satan hates this. It's a scheme of Satan to tell you that you don't need the church. That you don't need to obey God and gather with his people. Satan is the father of lies. He's a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, wanting to divide and conquer us, wanting us to scatter like the disciples once did. If you think church is optional, that it's not a necessity, not a priority, that you're, that you're strong enough on your own, that you can do this on your own, Well, that doesn't sound like God's message ever in Scripture. Instead, what it sounds like is the strategy of Satan intending to pick off stragglers. Teens, if you're headed off to college, here we are coming into the fall. If you're headed off to college, do you know that around 80% who grow up in the church end up walking away from their faith? And that leaving home and not plugging into a church and Christian fellowship is the biggest reason for this? When the choice is yours, when you're on your own, will you go to church? Will you have that fellowship with other believers who are going to hold you accountable and encourage you and encourage you in your obedience to God? Or... You're going to be a straggler who scatters and gets picked off. James Boyce gave some good advice saying, I have noticed that when students go away to college, the thing that seems more important than anything else in determining whether they get on in the Christian life or whether they drift away is whether in the first months of school they identify with other Christians on the campus. There are other things they need, of course. They need prayer and Bible study. They need to worship God in church. But peer contact and encouragement seems to be especially important. So I always tell students who are about to go away to college, get in touch with a Christian group right off. Identify with the other Christians on the campus. God will work through those others to hold you and build you up during these days. Great advice. Leaving home, away from your regular accountability and encouragement is a great temptation to ignore the necessity, the necessity of fellowship. 
And this is true for, for all of us. Think about it. Going through, what, what have we seen in the last two years? Going through COVID and people being accustomed to staying home, isolated, not making a priority of, of gathering together. You're a target. And there will be even more nominal Christians as a result of this. Unlike, you know, we, we want to be like that powerful first century church. Well, they gathered under persecution. We can never turn the world upside down if we're scattered, separate, not prioritizing, coming together, being together. Midweek, having those Bible studies, home groups, small groups. So if you're truly concerned for our culture and in enduring in the faith, we can't avoid this kind of obedient gathering in prayer and study. Number three, in their waiting, we see a time of constant prayer. Verse 14 says that in one accord, in a unity of mind, a oneness, they devoted themselves to prayer. This, this same purpose of heart in their praying. Think of the context here. They've, they've seen Jesus die on the cross, be raised, showing them many proofs that he was with them as he was with them over these 40 days, teaching them, speaking of their task, their commission, that he would equip them through the coming Holy Spirit. And then we see Jesus exalted, ascended to heaven. And now they wait. Now they wait. Do you think they felt a bit overwhelmed? Excited? But overwhelmed at the thought of them taking the message of Jesus to the ends of the earth? It's not as if they'd come off some great personal victories. Their weakness was self-evident. They had just scattered and hid and failed in so many ways. And they, they will be apostles, disciples, taking the good news of Jesus to the ends of the earth. So with this in mind, how do you think they prayed? Again, Luke's gospel tells us that after the ascension, they worshipped him. They had great joy. They were blessing God. So not only were they aware and asking the Lord to supply what they desperately needed for the task, but they were, they were blessing God. They were giving thanks. They were with great joy praising him. And a helpful acrostic that you probably know that teaches us the various aspects of prayer happens to be Acts. There was adoration in their joyful worship of God. Likely confession over their doubts and failures, saying something like, Lord Jesus, forgive us for the ways in which we denied you, left you. And can you imagine the incredible thanksgiving at the realization of what Jesus has accomplished and who he is and that they've been called by him. And knowing what Jesus has called them to do, certainly they went to him with supplication, 
asking God to make them faithful and strong for what was to come. It's weighty. It's glorious. It's exciting work that's before them. And the Holy Spirit is coming, and so they're, they're preparing for this. Okay, here's a question. If God were to tell you something very specific of what he was going to do in your life, would it be your reaction to pray? The disciples knew the Holy Spirit was coming to be their helper. So why pray? Why pray for his coming? He's coming. Once again, we see human responsibility and the sovereignty of God. Once again, we see in the lives of God's people uh, that they have this, they didn't have this view of an either or. As either my choices and responsibilities or God's sovereignty over his creation. So let's face it. We, we, maybe you struggle with prayer and you think, you know, I can't tell God anything that he doesn't already know. So what's the point? We can't or we shouldn't want to convince God to handle it our way instead of his all-knowing, all-wise, perfect way. But knowing this shouldn't result in our silence. Why pray for the Holy Spirit when Jesus already said it's a done deal, that it's God's promise? Why pray for your growth in holiness if God has already said that it's his will to sanctify you? It's mysterious, isn't it? But it's also a bit obvious and simple. Don't be so pragmatic in your praying as if it's only about the results. Yes, praying is a means that God uses to accomplish his sovereign will. And how this works is mysterious to us. But on a simple level, do you talk with the people you love? Is your communication only a set of demands or apologies? Prayer is relational. The conversations you have with your small children shape them, grow them. And the prayers that we have with God do the same with us. They shape us, they conform us to him, and they help us to trust in his promises. They grow us in our confidence concerning God and his goodness and faithfulness as a father. We know that he promises to provide and to give us what we need. We know that he works all things for our good. So why wouldn't we want to talk with him about these things? And confess our doubts. And praise him for who he is. And give thanks Instead of keeping our anxieties bottled up inside, cast them on him. If you're a parent, that's what you want your kids to do. Not keep it all bottled up. Talk to you about it. When we do this, we're being changed in the process. We talk to the people we love. We go to the people who can help us. We want to 
who, who, who want to hear from us, who love us. God doesn't need us. He didn't need these people to spread the gospel in order to save anyone. He has the power to save everyone in an instant because he's the one who controls and changes the human heart. He's our creator. But God is so gracious and so loving. He stoops to involve us in his work. And that's what he's doing with this first century church. There's there's a great honor to be involved no, no greater joy than being involved in what God is doing. So we're, we often say, you know, we're made for God's glory. And so he graciously involves us by, by what? He, he actually uses your words. Uses your words, uses your acts of kindness to show people his love. He uses our prayers as a means to accomplish his will. He takes our, our powerless words and powerfully uses them to bring about salvation. He takes our prayers. He uses them. Incredible. And if this topic creates a lot of questions, please ask me. I love talking about this. I've, I've wrestled with prayer and the sovereignty of God and a lot of these issues for most of my life. And, and not just on some academic level but in some very hard sufferings? They're good questions. They're important questions. And uh, I'd be honored to talk with you about it. Whether you understand it or not, whatever you do, obviously, should be obvious to us, don't stop praying. Our faith is not simply a set of beliefs. It's a relationship with a real living person, Jesus. And there's no greater privilege than being invited to think of it. You get invited to speak with the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. He actually wants to hear from you. As a people, they were devoted to prayer. They were united in what they prayed, and so should we. In times such as these, when truly our country, our society, our world is so rapidly changing toward what is evil, we need to pray. It's a spiritual battle, and we need to pray. We need to be devoted to prayer. We need to be united in our prayers that the Holy Spirit would so fill us and empower us to be his church to be known for our love for each other, to stand out so that people recognize a difference in our fellowship, that we're not just one more club or a form of entertainment, but that we're an obvious presence, that there is an obvious presence of God in our lives, in our midst. It bears witness to Jesus concerning the gospel. If ever in our lifetime there was a time to be devoted to prayer and gathering together in unity and not isolating as individuals, it's now. We have no idea, no promise that we will see a revival in our country, but historically speaking, every single revival that's ever occurred within human history, 
is preceded by great times of praying. If we neglect to pray, no amount of social media, no political involvement will bring about change. Where people repent, change where people repent of their sins and turn to the mercy and forgiveness of Jesus, which is what we, of course, want for our culture, for our world. Fourth, something else we see in this time of waiting is study. Look at verse 16. When Peter begins to speak about the need to replace Judas, he quotes scripture. How did he know that scripture? He said, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas. And then later he quotes two passages from two different psalms. The implication is that while they were waiting, Peter and likely the others were studying the scriptures. No, ma- uh, no matter how much we, will, uh, we want change, <laughs> we can't get around the study of God's word. We may want a, I think in our culture, we just want a pill. We want, we want a, We want just a quick fix for our problems, some new discovery, some new method. Nothing ever will replace what God has given to us in prayer and the scriptures. We talk to God in prayer. We hear from God through his word. Again, it's it's a relationship. Talking and listening, learning, obeying, conforming. Nothing replaces these two gifts. And as great as prayer is, studying the Bible might suggest is even more important. I say this because, let's face it, what what God has to say to me is a lot more important than what I have to say to him. Both are important, but if we're going to prioritize one over the other, I would say the study of God's word. Somebody once said, I love this, He said, um, I don't know who it was, but I think wisely that when we're talking to God and God is talking to us, we had better let God do most of the talking. In other words, pray. But we should spend most of our time listening to him as we study our Bibles. What did the apostles study? What they had was the Old Testament. New Testament is yet to be written. So they have the Old Testament. They searched it for prophecies concerning the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. This is what Jesus taught them to do. This is what Jesus showed the disciples on the road to Emmaus. It's likely what he was telling them to do over these 40 days. Uh, we read concerning the, the um, uh, Emmaus disciples, um, Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So over 40 days, when he was with them, I think it's safe to assume that Jesus continued to do this very same thing. That he taught what the Messiah was to do when he came. And don't you think that they were, they were blown away? They were fascinated by this. Having their eyes open to to the person who had been with them all along and died and was raised for them. 
Don't you imagine that this gave them a, a hunger that after Jesus ascended, they went to the scriptures. They began to study. As we continue on through the book of Acts, we'll see Peter and others giving these wonderful sermons involving Old Testament passages. The Holy Spirit is opening their eyes, but, but just like us, we need to do the work of reading and studying and praying and understanding. So if we say that we want God to bless our church or our family or our nation, if we're really serious then we need to understand that the way God blesses is usually through the study of the Bible. As people grow in a knowledge of what God has said, and as we respond to it in faith, believing it to be true, obeying Him, praying over it, telling others. Are you in a season of waiting? If you're in a season of waiting not wasted. This time is not wasted. It's never wasted if you decide to become a better student of God's word. Obedience, fellowship, prayer, study. These things will always lead to a response, a right response, a right action. Yes, even though this section of Acts is a time of waiting, still they were led to an action. Even in this passage, the action of recognizing, hey, we need to choose another leader. We need to replace Judas. This is what God's word tells us to do. Let's do that. Through their study, through obediently being together and praying, they realized the scriptures prophesied the betrayal of Judas and that another should take his office. And some people, they look at this Kind of unusual, isn't it? People have even wrongly criticized the, uh, the disciples and how they went about making this choice. Remember the text says that it came down to two qualified candidates to fill this 12th spot of an apostle and then they cast lots, which is the equivalent of what? Drawing straws, flipping a coin... Seems odd to us. Some people read this and think, well, that's why we never hear about Matthias. (laughs) But there's a lot of apostles that we don't hear anything about. and It doesn't mean that they weren't effective in their ministry. People think that they resorted to a pagan way of, of choosing him. But if they study their Bibles, they would know that many of the apostles... Yes, they're not mentioned. We shouldn't draw wrong conclusions. And if we know our Bibles, we know that casting lots, it was a common Old Testament method for making a choice. Examples in Leviticus Leviticus 16 and Numbers 26 and Proverbs 16.33 states, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Casting lots would have involved writing two names on either a piece of stone or wood, putting them into a a garment or a container, shaking it, and without looking, drawing one of the names, like drawing a name out of a hat. 
but for these Old Testament saints who knew that God controls every detail, again, getting back to the sovereignty of God, even the casting of lots, they, they recognized this is Jesus making the choice. Look at verse 24, actually. They prayed and said, you, Lord, Jesus, you know the hearts of all. Show which one of these two you have chosen. Jesus chose the original 12. Now they're asking him to choose, through the casting of lots, Judas's replacement. So is this, is this how we pick the elders? Throw some names in a hat, see who God sovereignly chooses. Uh, if this was right and biblical for them, we might rationalize, then why not today? Why don't, why don't we do this today? Well, here's the difference. The Holy Spirit had not yet come, and after his coming, we never see this practice again in God's word. Also, we have something different that they didn't have, the complete canon of scripture in the New Testament, and the qualifications um, for choosing an elder, they're given to us in God's word, in First Timothy and Titus. And so God does direct us who the elders should be. What are the qualifications? But for them, it was more than casting lots. It was, they didn't just cast lots. Notice that there are qualifications being given for choosing this big A apostle. The person taking Judas's place needed to be a witness to Jesus's resurrection. This 12th place in particular, this person needed to have been with them during Christ's earthly ministry, a witness to his baptism, his resurrection, his ascension. So there are qualifications here that, that they base this choice on. Later on, we, well, we think, well, what about Paul? Well, Paul was recognized by the apostles, and Paul met the qualification of encountering the risen Lord. So people today who speak of modern day apostles are simply wrong because this was a unique office. This was a unique office given to firsthand eyewitnesses to Jesus and his earthly ministry, his resurrection. There are no big A apostles today because no one meets the biblical qualification. The requirements that God has designed in building his church. The apostles are, are the foundation. Jesus is the cornerstone. And then the church, with its various offices, deacons, elders, our different giftings and roles, that's the structure built on the foundation of the apostles. Again, obedience, fellowship, prayer, and study has led them to this action. And ultimately, they appeal to Jesus. He is ascended, but as I pointed out last Sunday, he is present. He is ascended, but he is present. He is with them. How did they make this choice of Matthias? They studied scripture. They saw another should take Judas's place. They obeyed scripture. Because of their unity, their fellowship, they recognized two men who met the qualifications for this office and they prayed and they asked Jesus to make the choice. 
All of these go together. Our response to a sovereign Lord should always be one of obedience, fellowship, prayer, and a right study of his word. All of our actions should spring from this. Let's pray together. Father, we humble ourselves before you, recognizing that our calling is a matter of your glory and your good purposes. Help us to be faithful. Lord, open our eyes to the importance of obeying you in all things, being connected as the body of Christ, working together in in unity and love. Lord, give us a hunger to pray, to grow in our relationship with you, to bring our praises, our confessions, our thanksgiving, humble requests before your throne, knowing that you are good, that you are sovereign, that you have so graciously involved us in your work. Lord, thank you for the fact that you hear us, that you are with us. Thank you that you speak to us through your word. Thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit who helps us to understand what you are saying. Lord, give us a a greater hunger for your word, for this relationship that you've called us into. Thank you, Father. Thank you for Jesus. Lord, open our eyes to his glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.